Ephesians 2, I want you to look again at that passage that was read. As I do believe it is one of the most important in the whole Bible. I don't mean to say that as pastoral hyperbole. I do mean that it is important. It has a lot of power in it, and I think it has the ability, this passage, these ten verses have the ability to sort of upturn everything that you think that you know about the church, about God, about the Christian life as a whole. They can literally, these verses can turn uh, our religion, our faith upside down. These, I think, are some of the most significant verses. And the Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, Uh, seeks to dismantle, I think, any preconceived notions that we might have about how religion is supposed to work. And also, what he does also is give us this really big, this really grand picture of the way of God's salvation. He gives us this really big picture of it here. And then you see this letter to the Ephesians. Paul is addressing some false ideologies and false theologies that had risen up in the area surrounding Ephesus during this time. You know, Paul passed through the city of Ephesus around uh, A.D. 52 on his second missionary journey. He was uh, doing ministry work and he passed through this town. He established a church and then he would later spend two and a half years uh, from about A.D. 54 to 56 uh, singularly preaching and teaching and ministering the gospel to this church at Ephesus. This is an important church to Paul. And then he writes this letter about five years later, around 60 to 61, um, and he writes this letter. Uh, it is believed that he wrote this letter um, with the letter to the Colossians. So if, you're, if you have those two books, you can kind of see, as Pastor Jay mentioned last week, some very, very similar themes in both letters. It is because he wrote them about the same time to address the same problems in both churches. Similar challenges were uh, in both cities. But Paul is writing here to, uh, I think, dismantle and to totally eradicate any threats to the gospel with which he had been entrusted and which, with which he was entrusting to these Ephesian Christians. It is also believed, though, uh, also that Ephesians is what they would call a circular letter. And by that I mean it was a letter that was, yes, written for the Christians in the church of Ephesus, but it was meant to be passed around to multiple churches. Paul wrote this letter and he gave it to this church and that it was passed around to a bunch of other churches in that region. It was meant for a wider audience. And why? Because it has a significant message, not just for that church, but for Christians as a whole. And guess what? We're reading the same letter 2,000 years later. It's significant. Uh, it was, it's just as significant today as it was back then. It's important for us to see that. And as is our theme for this series, Ephesians, I believe, is the perfect anthem of God's incomprehensible love for sinners. And I would say that this passage uh, brings that out in, in vivid, vivid color. So let's look at this, this, this dismantling of the Apostle Paul, but also this picture of salvation by doing some, some investigative journalism, let's say. And by that I mean, uh, I want to ask the six basic informational questions who and what and when and where and why and how. And I think asking those questions about this passage will give us this glorious picture of God's salvation. So the first question we have to ask then is this, who does God save? 
Who does God save? Well, look at uh, who, who are the kind of people that God goes after to rescue and redeem. Well, look again at verse 1. Paul says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye also walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul is saying that God goes after these people, I like how he says it, who are dead, These people who are walking after the prince of the power of the air. These children of wrath. These children of disobedience. And then the short answer is this. That God goes after sinners. Who are the people God saves? He saves sinners. And by extension, and I don't mean to offend you, but he goes after you. Because everyone here in this room is having, it can find a description of themselves in these verses. Verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 describes every single one of us here. And I would even say that it describes every single one who has ever lived on this earth. Even if you call yourself a Christian, this was you. You were dead. That's why Paul says, wherein in time past ye walked. And also in verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation, our manner of living, our way of life. This is how we were living before Jesus. You were his enemy. You were dead in sin. You were a a lawbreaker, a children, a child of disobedience. And nothing about you was good or holy or, uh, or, or righteous or anything like that. Everything about you was only sinful and only selfish. That's why it says in verse 3 that your, your, your conversation, as it says, your manner of life was only after the fulfilling the desires of the flesh. This was you. I hate to burst your religious bubble, your Christian bubble, but this was you. This was me. Before Jesus, I was dead. And maybe we can say this, that maybe this is still you this morning. Maybe you don't know Jesus as your Savior. And I would say that that Paul is, what he's trying to get your attention, he's trying to raise up your eyes and say, look, you're not just sick. You're not just kind of unhealthy with this sin problem. You are dead. You don't just need medicine and a a magic pill or a silver bullet. You need resurrection. You need the resuscitation of the gospel. You don't need medicine that can kind of fix things in your life. You need to be raised from the dead because you are dead in sin. Sin can't be cured by anything like that, a magic pill or a silver bullet. It can't be fixed by your activity, obviously, because you are dead. (laughs) You need God's intervention. So that leads us to our next question. Not only who did God save, but what did God do to accomplish this salvation? Look at verses 4 through 6 again. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. What does God do with these dead sinners? What does God do with these enemies of his kingdom? Well, again, it's very unexpected. 
Because instead of casting them off and, and committing them all to the punishment that they deserved, what does he do? He shows them love and mercy by making a way to save them. But God, who is rich in mercy, and despite all that we had done against them, despite all that we do against the name of Jesus Christ, God himself intervenes and makes a way for our salvation. Despite all that we had done, but God. I think those are the two most beautiful and most uh, impactful words in the whole Bible. That despite all of that, despite all the deadness and the, and, the, and the rebellion, but God, who is rich in mercy, he made a way so you would not have to feel the punishment that you deserved. But look at what he says. That It says, it, but God, verse 5 even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together. That is, he made us alive. I think that's very uh, important and significant that the Apostle Paul is repeating the contrast from verse 1, that those who are dead in sin are quickened, are made alive by God. But this merciful God made us alive. Also verse 6, but this merciful God, it says, raised us Together, he raised us. This is, I think, meaning he's given us the full measure of the Father's righteousness. That he not only just brings us up from the dead and saves us from our sin, he gives us everything that the Father has given to the Son. All the righteousness that is his is now ours. But look also, it gets even more than that because look at verse 6 still. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We're not just raised up to God. We get all the benefits of being Christ's sons and daughters. We get to sit down at the Father's right hand because Jesus has brought us up there by his righteousness. The enemies, you see this? The enemies are made God's family. How amazing is that? That the enemies, the people who are dead, are brought to life and made into God's family. And that's why, this is the most amazing thing, that the, that, the, the, that the gospel of God's salvation is the gospel of adoption. And that this church is not a mausoleum for saints. This church is an orphanage for sinners. <laughs> That every one of us here are sinners saved by grace and we've been brought in, adopted into God's family. That, to me, is something that is amazing that I can't get over. That God has made a way to save me and I've been adopted because of what he did. But not only that, if you can think it gets better, that every delight then, that God seats us down, every delight that God has for his son, guess what? He has for you. Every delight that God has in his son is yours. It's conferred to you once you believe in him. This is what God does. This is the, the what of what God does in salvation. And I would like to say this too, that if, I'm not a Greek expert, believe me. But if you look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, you will find that 1 through 7 is one big sentence. <laughs> Paul doesn't really know what it means to have a run-on sentence, and he just keeps adding commas and semicolons and has this really, really long sentence. 
But I bring that to your attention because I want you to notice who is doing the action in these seven verses. It's not us. It's God. God is the subject of this long run-on sentence that God is the one who is quickening. God is the one who is raising. God is the one who is sitting us back down again. God is the subject. He's the actor. And guess what? We're the direct objects. (laughs) We receive that action. We don't act ourselves. We receive what God has acted on our behalf. That's amazing to me that God, this guy who is in, uh, in the heavenly places, has seen fit to come down and save us enemies. So this entire salvation is not in a human achievement. It's not something that we have done, obviously. It is only a divine act of grace. That's why Paul, he can't even help himself. Look at, he adds that parenthetical phrase at the end of verse 5. By grace are ye saved. He just adds it. He can't, he just can't wait to get it. He can't wait to get to it. Grace is sort of bursting at Paul's seams here. But only who does God save and what does God do in this salvation? But thirdly, our third question we have to ask is when did God do this? When does God establish this way of salvation? I think this is a very important question. It's fundamental to the Christian faith. Does God wait to establish this way of salvation uh, before he sees something in us? Does he wait to establish this gospel, this way of saving sinners before uh, these sinners do something in the way of change? (laughs) Not even close. Look at verse 5. Let's go back to verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Even when we were dead, God was making a way to save us. That's the when. He doesn't wait for us to change. He doesn't wait for us to make some sort of semblance coming towards him. He comes towards us and he says, I will make the way of salvation. God doesn't wait. He goes out and initiates the search. He is seeking after us, even when we weren't seeking after him. And that's the gospel. It's the best news for the worst people. The best news possible, that God was coming after us, even when we were running away from him. And God shows his love for this world by loving the world, even when they were his enemies. Think about that. It reminds me of Romans 5.8. I'll just read it really quickly. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were dead, even when we were enemies, Jesus was loving the world. And that's amazing truth because that means that God's love isn't dependent upon who we are. It's a manifestation of God's own heart. It's who God is. As it says in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. When you get saved, you're not unlocking some secret compartment of God's love. That's who God is. He has loved you before the foundation of the world. And God loves you not because he sees something in you that's good or something that's lovable or something that he can use. He loves you because he is love. 
as Pastor Jay has taught about in the last two weeks, that from the, uh, you can even see it from Ephesians 1 verse 4, that it says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, before you were born, God was making a way to save you. Before you were even a thought in your parents' minds, before you even had a blip on this long history of man's uh, timeline, you were being redeemed by what God was doing. He was making a way for your redemption. But next, not only who and what and when, our fourth question we have to ask is where? Where did God do this? Again, it's an unexpected place. Where do sinners find this salvation accomplished for them? Where is this place of victory? Look at verse 5 where it says, He hath quickened us together with Christ. In verse 6, He has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. The place of your salvation is the place of Jesus' crucifixion. When Jesus was dying on that cross in that place called Golgotha, called the place of a skull, that place where it was only supposed to be a place of death, guess what? That was your place of life. That when Jesus was dying there and he was breathing his last, guess what? He was thinking of you. And when the nails were piercing his hands, and then the nails were piercing his feet, and when the blood was streaming from his head, and the blood was streaming from his side, guess what? He was thinking of your sin and dying for it. He was paying for all of your sin, past, present, and future, when he was on that tree. When he was hanging there, suffocating for you. He was dying for you. He wasn't just going to the cross with the world on his mind. He was going to the cross with you on his mind. That my sin, Bradley Gray's sins were nailed to that tree. And as it says in Colossians, they were canceled by what he did. Your sin was paid for by what Jesus accomplished. And the very place of his death is the place of our life. That's Incredible. Next we have to ask this fifth question. Why? Why did God do this? What is the point of all this, 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 this gospel? What's the point of all this? Why does God even determine to save sinners at all? They've sinned against him. Why doesn't he just cast them off forever and just start over again? No, that, they messed that up. Let me, let me start over again. New, new run of the matrix. Let's start over. No, that's that's not what God did. You know why? Because I think he wanted to show off just how gracious he was. He wanted to he wanted to show off his grace. God is he's showing off here. <laughs> you know why? Because he think about this. He God's holiness is so important to him that he will buy it at his own son's expense. But guess what? God is so gracious that he will pay for your sins at his own son's expense. (laughs) He is so committed to his holiness and his grace that he sacrifices his own son for you. And I want to read you this extended quote from one of my favorite authors. His name is Horatius Bonar. But I think it explains what we're talking about so well. He says this. 
That a world that remains unfallen, untainted by sin, reveals but half of God. The deep recesses of God's own character only come out in a connection with a world that is fallen, that is sinful. You see, to learn what holiness is and how holy God is, we need not merely to see his feelings towards the holy, but towards the unholy. And listen to this, very important. God's purpose is to make himself more known to you, a sinner, than was made known to Adam in his sinlessness. God wants to show you more of himself than was ever seen before. And how does he do that? By redeeming sinners. (laughs) Not by just fraternizing with holy people, but by coming down and taking the place of sinful people. He comes down and he takes our place and so that we can learn way more of God's salvation of sinners than in any other way. This shows us the full expanse of God's heart. It shows us sort of the immensity of God's love and grace. That's why it says in verse 7 that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding, the abundant, the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. He's showing off the depths of his person. The deep recesses of his character. You have to think about God and his character as a cavern. It's a cave. It's deep. It's wide. And you can keep on uh, mining. You can keep on going deeper. As I've said before, you can go spelunking in God. And you can keep finding new ways to keep going deeper. (laughs) There's always going to be something more you can learn about Jesus and the way he saves sinners in his grace. You know why? Because God, as it says, he is exceeding really rich in grace. And we'll never reach the bottom of this. We'll never find the limits of it. God's love is deeper than all of our sin and all of our unworthiness and all of our need. But also to show off, but I think also to, why does God do this? To make sinners into masterpieces. Again, showing off his grace. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, that you could also say that we are his masterpieces, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is why we are saved. This is why we are shown grace. It's to show off more of God's grace. (laughs) We're works of art. Out of the the terrible, nasty, ugly material of all of your sin, God makes works of art that showcase his glorious grace and mercy. That forever are representing the work of the artist, not you. They're representing the work of what God has done in you, not what you have done. And then we have to ask, sixthly, how? How does God do this? We've seen what God has done and who God has done this to and where and when and why. But how? How does God do this? How does God accomplish this salvation in us? And this answer, I think, is the most fundamental answer of all. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Very clearly, all of salvation is all of grace. 
from beginning to end, from when you first believe in Jesus to when you pass away from this earth. All of that is sustained and carried and accomplished by the grace of God. He accomplishes every single uh, miracle in this work of salvation. It's not by your work. It's not by your merit. It's not by what you can do. It's not by your sweat. It's not by your blood. It's by Jesus' sweat. It's by Jesus' blood. It's by Jesus' life and death that this is accomplished for you. And I think that this dismantles any sort of notion that we have done anything to save ourselves. As has been said before, that the only thing that you provide to this salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's the only thing you are doing here. The only thing you are doing here is is providing the rebellion for for which God has to redeem you from. (laughs) You see, these verses here clearly show that the word of God alone announces we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. That's the gospel, period, full stop, no add-ons, no fine print, no stipulations, no amendments, that's it. There's no fine print at the bottom, you know, like in those car commercials that say you have to meet these certain terms and conditions, none of that. This is the gospel. You believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, and you are saved, and you are secure in what Jesus has done for you. That is the gospel. And you see how this flies in the face of modern philosophy? No one wants to be told that their works don't matter. No one wants to be told that they can't save themselves. We're preaching this message. This message is, is an it is finished message in a just do it world. It collides. It can't, it can't mix. People don't want to hear this. That the work is done before they've already even tried to start doing it. They want to have a part in it. But you can't save yourself. You can't raise yourself or make peace with God yourself. Because there's only one thing and one thing alone that spans this vast chasm between God and sinners. And that's this cross of Christ that we have just talked about. And we offend God greatly when we insist that our religiosity counts towards his salvation of us. It's almost like... I was thinking about it. It's almost like trying to pay for a check that God has already paid for. <laughs> Have you ever been out to eat with someone and you're like, hey, I got this. Don't worry about it. I, I got, I, I'll, get, I'll cover this one. And they, they, they still try and pay. They, they, no, let me get my part. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, let me pay the tip at least. Let me just at least pay the tip, right? I, I can at least do that. I'll leave a couple bucks on that. They, they want some part in it. They want to have some skin in the game, so to speak. magnify that offense, you know, when you were offended that they didn't take your generous uh, action towards them. Take that offense, multiply it by a billion billion, and that's how offended God is when we think that we can have some part to play in our salvation. God has paid up this check. He's paid it in full. You don't have to add to it. You're shoving the gift back in God's face when you try and do that. You're like, nah, God, I got this. I don't need you. I can make my own way. I can be my own God. Again, we want that. We want some skin in the game. But I would say this to keep that metaphor going, that there is no game. It's already been won. And the skin was was Jesus' is not yours. (laughs) 
Grace totally cancels the competition and it gives you the only score that matters. That is, the righteousness of God is credited to you. This is God's salvation. He goes all the way to save you. He doesn't just go 99 yards and say, hey, you do this last one yard, you punch it into the end zone. He goes all the way to save you, even taking your punishment. He took all of that onto himself. He took all of that filth, all of that guilt, all of that shame, all of that sin, all of, the, uh, all of your uh, foul words, all of your lustful thoughts, all of your fits of anger, all of your bitter feelings, all the things that you have been offended by and all the things that you have done in offense to others. He took all of that on himself. And he died for it. He bled for it. And he rose again for it. Jesus became the criminal so that we, the criminals, might go free. Jesus became the adulterer. Jesus became the liar. Jesus became all of those things for us, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He did this for you, for me. This is God's incredible salvation. And the key is, it's a gift. It's free of charge. It's given to you already. It's been extended to you already. So therefore, if you don't know Jesus this morning and you repent and believe in him, you are accepting this gift that's already bought, that's already been paid for, that is totally secure in what he did. That's why I would just want to close by two last little thoughts. That for you Christians here this morning, remember that it is finished. Don't walk out of here thinking that there's something else I have to do to make this salvation uh, secure in my life. It is finished. When Jesus said that, I think he meant it. And that salvation, this salvation that we have seen here this morning was purchased for you before you were even born. And so you didn't win it, therefore you can't lose it. Number two, to those of you who don't know Jesus here this morning, who have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, the time is now for you to repent. Because God has bought your salvation with your blood. Why would you keep running away from this gift? Why would you keep trying to shove it back in God's face and say, I can be my own God when he says, just take it, just open it. Your salvation is waiting for you in Jesus. Let God save you and let God show you just how deep his cavern of grace goes. Because guess what? It goes far beyond you could ever imagine. Let's pray.